Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to the 93rd episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Hello, co-host Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's great to hear you. So we are still in the midst of this corona closure, which causes lots of us to think about things that maybe as individuals, families, or even as the church, we've taken for granted. And you came up with a provocative question, which simply is this. Will the gospel survive the summer without the mission trips that churches and youth groups customarily take. That's right. So Christianity Today had this article talking about how all of the mission trips throughout Central America, Europe, Africa, that are planned by organizations like Campus Crusade have all been canceled because of the different lockdowns and travel restrictions because of the coronavirus. And so it gives us a a moment to ask, how can the church survive or how can the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ survive if there are not people going and sharing it this summer? Do we expect the church to recede or to fail in these areas? Or perhaps this is the time for us to consider the effect or the impact these mission trips actually serve and have. So one of the first things that comes to mind when you brought up that question is, when we talk about essential services, we, we definitely have a whole segment of the civil government that has decided that church attendance is not an essential thing, whereas liquor stores are and Walmarts are and things having to do with buying food. And when you see organizations that put such emphasis on these mission trips, my first question was, well, if it's so important, why aren't they willing to risk what might happen to these people if, in fact, this gospel message is so important to get out there? Right. Well, the, the essential side here on the United States, uh, whether it was Sunday services or Bible studies, whatever, has certainly been you know chopped off at the feet. And we're actually criticized as pastors if we somehow suggest that Christianity or or Sunday services are some type of essential services. I think it shows really in our culture this dichotomy that we have that church is some kind of spiritual or non-physical thing and that that we and how we eat or the restaurants or the bank or the post office or even the hardware store, because it's physical and we can see it, touch it, taste it, that somehow these things now are essential. And that really, that that paradigm of spiritual being not real or the non-material being something related to the gospel has taken root down to even what we would consider faithful evangelical churches. They don't understand or they have separated in their mind the gospel, how it applies to the tactile world. They have in their mind created these separate distinctions. There's the gospel, which applies to spiritual things, and then there is the essential tasks of everyday life, which are not gospel related. And it's not just the government that does this, it's our our Bible-believing churches. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a story, I think it was both Martin Luther and John Calvin, who felt that it was their responsibility pastorally to walk among people who were sick because their role as a minister was to actually minister in that way. Do I have that history correct? You do, especially with Luther. And uh, Luther actually has some written materials where he talks about working despite the plague or ministering despite the plague. I think there's a, a case in Calvin where the consistory, that is the the, uh, the local government, prohibited from ministering during times of sickness. And so there are examples in both parts of the Reformation where during the plague, the ministers desired to get the gospel to the people and the uh, they're reacting to plague and sickness uh, in both ways, but both of them have the perspective that the gospel is an essential commodity, central to the life. The gospel is not impacted or, or dissuaded because of sickness. I think 
the the selfishness or the conceitedness of modern man is to think that somehow whatever we're facing today is new and that it's never been addressed before. We're, we're so uh, self-centered that we don't recognize that there's 2,000 years of experience where the church has faced these. And whether you look at the first century, whether responding to, to Roman persecution or great times of sickness or war, the church has always maintained that their job is to march forward even in times of adversity. Now, my understanding of the issue with Calvin wasn't that his consistory was unwilling to have people ministered to. They thought Calvin was too important in terms of his preaching role to potentially compromise him to get sick. But it wasn't that they were thinking that the people of God shouldn't be out ministering to those who were afflicted with this plague. That's right. And that's true uh, during the Reformation. It's true during uh, the medieval period, during times of plague. The advent of Christian hospitals, and really the advent of all modern medicine, finds its root as Christians go into impoverished, in sickened, in dangerous circumstances, and say, the Lord's sovereign, even here. There was a time when, much like what is happening uh, throughout the world where people are running away from disease, Christians with their confidence of life after death were able to go headlong into disaster and disease because they had a confidence that the efforts they do today, though it may kill their body, will have these eternal rewards for those who they are ministering to. So it really was a reflection of the fact that they considered those without the gospel, those without the Holy Spirit, to be in a deficient or have a deficit, and they were going to minister to rectify that, not let's look at the hot spots and go the other direction. Right. Or, or even those who had the Holy Spirit, you know, they would go into Christian communities where people had been baptized, and they would minister to those who the civil government or who the rest of society would ignore. The Christian said, our people are for us to take care of, and their people are for us to take care of. So whether it was to begin with, with taking in infants or caring for the sick, or all of those things were part of this Christian idea of mission, which is that we go in, we build, and we occupy. We don't run away. Now, one of the really prominent examples, and we'll get to the mission trips in a bit, but the fact that abortion clinics remain open as an essential service and people who would go to preach and dissuade people from having an abortion were considered non-essential. And the fact that there are groups of believers in churches that would say, well, that makes sense. After all, you know, it is legal for them to be open that we're supposed to obey our civil rulers. I think that there's a general misunderstanding that says that um, when it comes to obeying God, that we don't take our marching orders from an apostate or an ungodly civil government, we take it from the word of God. That's right. And that's exactly the example that Jesus gives us. I mean, when Jesus is face to face again with Pilate, he says, Pilate, you only have any authority because my Lord in heaven delegates authority down to rulers on earth. When St. Paul approaches the emperor there in Rome, he says the same thing. All authority comes from God. And so rather than Christians saying that we are under some arbitrary authority of rulers on earth, the gospel view of Romans 13, the Christian view has always been to call those in authority to recognize that they're servants, not of whatever country or, or prestigious office they're holding today, but that all of these ministers in the civil realm are ministers of God and therefore are held to an account. The role of the Christian as an intermediary is to remind them that the Lord is watching how they use their authority and those who use their authority for stopping evil and, and allowing good to continue will receive the blessing of God. And those who do the opposite, who perpetrate injustices, the Lord will not hold them guiltless. And so the gospel thing to do when we see something like you're describing with the abortion providers continuing to treat this as an essential service, the Christian goes to the magistrate, the intermediary, the police, the city council, the governor, the president, and says, 
The Lord has delegated authority to his ministers. Our call is to tell you this is what the Lord requires, <laughs> to show mercy, to do good, to walk humbly before our God. And that if you don't do this, the judgment of God will rain down and your rule will be taken away. Right. I think one of the most amazing things that have come out of this whole sheltering in place is hearing some of the civil authorities, most recently the governor of New York, who wants to make sure everybody understands that the fact that things are getting better had absolutely nothing to do with your prayers or God. It had to do with things that we did as governmental authorities. Sounds an awful lot like Pharaoh in Egypt, don't you think? No, certainly. It certainly did. And it really goes back to uh, the idea of Jesus as the good shepherd. What we often miss because we live in in a secular society is that when Jesus says he's the good shepherd, he's calling back to ancient rulers, ancient kings and emperors who saw themselves as the shepherd of the people. For ancient people, the idea of their monarch or their king or their judge was that he provided for their needs, protected them from evil. The idea of the state or civil realm was equated with this this illustration or analogy of the good shepherd. And so when Jesus comes and claims to be the good shepherd, he is calling to account all of the civil magistrates who are trying to take credit for the common good or the common grace that God has given over the people for centuries and you see here with, with Cuomo and, and his statements against God, he wants to be the good shepherd. He wants the credit for protecting us from the, the wolves or this evil virus. And he wants the credit for feeding the, the lambs with quarantines and, and stimulus checks. He wants to be the good shepherd. But we as a Christian people say we already have a good shepherd. Right. So let's bring this back to the idea of missions. Christianity has a long and vibrant history of taking the gospel to places where people had not heard it, or if they had heard it, they had discounted it. And so worldwide missions has been a very good thing. But lately, it has become, in a lot of ways, more of a happening than a calling. Could you speak a little bit to that? Right. Well, I'd love for us to talk about the, the origin of Christian missions and talk about people like Cyril and Methodius. But what it's really become today is almost like a type of evangelism slash tourism, right? We have folks who sign up to take a mission trip for a week or two weeks and they go to Mexico and they build a chicken coop or maybe they, they paint a house and they come home with the sense that they did their kingdom work. You know, maybe they, they let a, a Bible study or taught some some Jesus songs to a group of children and they are parachuted in through commercial airlines and parachuted out. But there's not a lot of impact for the amount of cost that goes into that. And there have been article after article talking about what is the, the best way to build Christian culture in a society? Is it by sending our 19, 20 and 21 year olds in to teach the first chapter of Romans, or is it something more comprehensive? And I think the history of the church teaches that Christianity is about rebuilding something beyond just uh, a salvation or a prayer story. And what's even more remarkable, a lot of these churches that send out these well-meaning, and let's call them well-meaning troops of people, do not have the same consideration on how important a Christian education is. So you have a lot of these young people who have been probably more inundated with humanism and more of a social justice or a social gospel message rather than the life-changing message of the need for Jesus Christ for you to enjoy fellowship with the Father that even what's being exported in many cases isn't a vibrant Christianity. Right. And that's true with these domestic mission trips, whether it's like after a disaster. And when I was in high school, I was maybe a Christian for a year before I went on my first short-term mission trip. And it was after Katrina. And I got in my youth group. We, we must've been 15, 16, 17 year old, all of us. 
And we raised a couple thousand dollars a piece and we flew to Louisiana and our goal or our job was to help them rebuild is what we told people on our fundraising letters. But once we got there, uh, really, what could you expect a a 17-year-old to be able to do? And so I got to paint a few walls of the church. I got to meet the local people. I got to help sweep and broom and do things that were relatively insignificant for the amount of money that had been spent to send me there. And it's not like you can expect you can expect a 17-year-old Christian who's been a Christian for a few months to be an excellent preacher. Uh, And we didn't have circumstances where we were invited to go into neighborhoods or things like that. And I imagine that many youth group mission trips are more motivated by what my youth pastor was. And they saw this as a, a service opportunity to train young people into becoming more committed Christians. Right. The goal of the mission trip to Louisiana after Katrina was more about how can we capture Steve and make him more committed to the Christian calling and less about the actual calling of mission. And so the actual results and activities and the amount of money that went into it were not really taken into proper consideration. But when you look at that at a global scale, what are we doing when we spend literally millions and millions of tithe dollars sending people like the 17-year-old me to Africa or to South America to do the very same thing with no language training, uh, with no long-term goals, with no metrics to measure how well they're done, with no expectation that we're raising up local leaders. And I think that what we've seen over the last few generations is that it's been largely a failure uh, in missions. And I remember years ago, a series of articles that appeared in the Calcedon magazine that was that were actually written by a missionary. And he talked about the impression of the locals when yearly these teams of people came in and would build, you know, latrine or would build uh, a recreation center or maybe even sometimes build a school. But they they actually had a attitude that they were going to amuse these people because these people were coming just to feel good and take pictures and and say, this is what I did. But it's not like they were necessarily respected by the people who live there. No, that's right. And you have to wonder if Christian missions, short-term missions worked, how in the world is it that we've sent so many thousands of people to every country, every, every place, and yet the places they go do not change. There have been uh, numerous studies about missiology, uh, the study of, of missions, and what it takes for something to change. And I think the big issue with short-term missions is it really truncates the gospel down to uh, a few prayers and a few songs and a, a warm feeling. And that because the Christians we're sending on short-term missions don't really understand the gospel, what they're communicating about who Jesus is, is also lost. The places in Africa that are experiencing, you know, these large widespread revivals are the theological heritage of missionaries from over 100 years ago. You know, these uh, English or or Protestant missionaries who came into North and Central Africa and built into their culture, Christian identity, those are the ones who have now created Christian footholds in Nigeria and Uganda. And those countries have explosive growth because they have real Christian roots. Places where our uh, missionaries have gone with teenagers and, and hospitality and service projects seem to always need more and more help. And part of that problem is because what we're investing as far as resources is not the most efficient use of human capital. There was a a story recently about a group of high school missionaries who went into uh, Guatemala and they went to Guatemala after some recent hurricane or, or disaster of some sort. And after they had built houses for all these people who had been displaced, they did the, the numbers and they figured out that it cost about $30,000 for these missionaries to build homes in Guatemala for these locals. And, you know, praise the Lord, these people are now not homeless. 
But what they didn't include is that if the local Guatemalans had each been given three thousand dollars, you know, a tenth of that amount, they could have paid for it to been built locally uh, and had you know this twenty-seven thousand dollars surplus. So what really did we end up getting out of having these short-term missions was this huge amount of waste and uh, bloating and probably shoddy work. I know that when I did short-term missions to places like like Mexico, I'd come in and help them build a chicken coop and they'd have to rebuild it after I left because what did a 25-year-old know about building the chicken coop? But this is really the part of short-term missions that is missing in the Christian idea of missions. Is the goal to go there and hand them something? Or is the goal to go there and create inside of them a Christian ethic towards business, building, education? Are you allowing them to transform the culture where they're at? Or are you or some outside force giving them something without preparing them to build on their own? And an interesting part of all this is a lot of the young people who do go on these short-term missions aren't using money that they themselves have earned. They usually go and ask other people to fund them doing it. You have to wonder what it would be like if somebody saved up what it is that they needed to go on these trips and with their blood, sweat, and tears saying, okay, now I'm going to invest in this. The model is very much like the model they bring to these places. Have somebody else fund me and now I'll go and I'll do something and everybody can feel good, but have the people who we've quote unquote helped, have they learned how to build houses for other people as well? So when the next disaster, as you said, they're equipped to rebuild. Right. And Ultimately, it's this strange American uh, pseudo-imperialism where we actually believe as Christians that we're somehow uh, superior to these people and we're going to give them the crumbs under our table, right? So no, no Christian missionary and crew doing short-term missions who's spending 50 grand a year for their bachelor's degree is making really any sacrifice to spend a week as a tourist in Uganda, Perhaps some of them go through the diligent labor you talked about of writing fundraising appeals, but that's not how Christian missions have ever worked before this century. You know, the great African revivals of the 19th century were ministers creating societies and moving to establish permanent beachheads in these countries and to develop tracts and cultures and churches and ministries inside of their cultures. And that's because Christianity has always been a whole life system. If you want to go in and capture a culture, you have to preach to the family. You have to change how they function as husband and wife. You have to give them a vision for their children. You have to educate them. You have to give them job skills. You have to give them a goal for their future. And that requires much more than one week. Now, my favorite uh, missionaries in this type of thinking are Cyril and Methodius. Now, they were missionaries who went into Eastern Europe at a time when Eastern Europe was considered barbaric. And before there was a Ukrainian orthodoxy or before there was a church of Romania or Bulgaria, this whole area were called the Slavic people, and they were considered barbarous. And so these Christian missionaries, Cyril and Methodius, travel from their churches, from their homes, into this barbarous land, and began to cement themselves or or plant themselves into this new culture. And if you've heard the word Cyril, you probably are familiar with the the Cyrillic alphabet, the, the foundations of the Russian language, because what the first thing they did was they began to become familiar with their culture in a way that they could then translate and change them into a Christian culture. So Cyril Methodius encounter the Slavs and they recognize there's no written language. They have no way of, of communicating the knowledge that the Western world can offer them. So they begin developing a new language for them. They take their language, they create a system of letters based on Greek and Latin letters. And we still have that somewhat today through the Cyrillic alphabet. And they translate the scriptures and they translate the history of the Western world and they give it to these people. And Cyril and Methodius allow these people 
to begin taking steps towards building a Christian culture. They established schools and churches. And instead of Cyril and Methodius bringing buckets full of food and feeding the people, Cyril and Methodius trained them to be a Christian people. And soon uh, the whole Slavic world was beginning to, by becoming Christian, come forward in Christian society. This is very similar to how Christianity functioned in any frontier land. In India in this last century, there was the whole movement after English occupation of the Church of South India. And the way it works is you go into an aboriginal culture, and instead of patronizing them by giving them handouts, you empower them by training them to be dominion-oriented. A great man by the name of Leslie Newbigin recognized that Missions would fail if they depended on the benevolence of outside organizations, that they needed to transform the culture into having productive tools. And so when we export Christianity or export the gospel into these cultures, what exactly gospel are we giving them? Are we giving them one of dependence on some outside source, or are we training them to be more than conquerors? Which goes back to your very provocative question at the outset is, if this work was so important to these people and these organizations, might they not find ways in which to pursue this? In other words, the gospel's only important so long as there's not a coronavirus. I mean, where are the priorities? And I think rather than make fun of these people, because that's not what we want to do, is just to point out, is there a sense of urgency or is there a sense of feeling good about themselves rather than not resting until these particular people hear the message of the gospel? That's right. Well, and I think a year from now, as we go into summer 2021, and we're planning our summer youth groups, going on mission trips, maybe there's a different perspective needed for how we organize these, the tasks we we, uh, suggest for them to do, how we spend the resources. If the Christian ministry and the gospel can survive not sending all of our kids on mission trips, maybe there's something more important for us to be doing. Part of this goes back to the idea of vocation and calling that Christians have. Instead of viewing missions and our job as two different things, what if we taught these young kids in crew that their vocation and their calling and their ministry and their missionary status were all the same thing? Instead of using short-term missions to kind of bifurcate their purpose in the gospel, what if we said, Whatever you're working on your degree on, this is going to be your missionary area. Instead of saying mission work is when you go to Africa for two weeks and real work is when you work in your law firm, what if we put those things together and said that Jesus Christ and his mission work has a calling where what you love about the Lord and your desire to share that with others and what gifts the Lord gave you are supposed to work together. And the more we continue to support this idea that those are separate ideas, the the worse and the least effective our ministries will be. Now, a really good example in a missionary-type work like you just described are those mission organizations that will send doctors and dentists to parts of the world where children with deformities can get reconstructive surgery, people who have had no dental care can get dental care. There's an example of taking both things and putting it together so that their mission and their calling are very much together. And I I know of one um, man who, as a result of going on one of these mission trips, ended up getting quite sick upon his return, but I've never, ever, ever heard him say he regrets having gone. I don't think people regret going. I think a short-term mission can be a way to expose uh, young Christians to uh, greater ways of service. I would love it to see people doing short-term missions to uh, our friends there at the, uh, the school in Mexico. And I would love for us to see 
people who are working on education degrees or or people who are aspiring to be uh, leaders in you know, second language to go into places where Christian missionaries are serving, do a short-term mission, support active ministries, and maybe get a sense of the calling that we have uh, in our communities and elsewhere. And I would love to see people who are maybe not even certain about God's call on their life after they've gone through high school. Um, instead of just making the automatic jump that I must go to college, you know, if we were to actually have people trained how to be Christian educators and how to impart the gospel as they were teaching people how to read, how to compute and things like that, we'd be doing a tremendous service. I know with all the immigrants that we have in our country, um, a lot of them could use help with their language skills, with their reading skills, with their writing skills. And if we made those people the object of our mission work, you know what? We could come home at night and sleep in our own beds and still be able to accomplish it rather than having to raise substantial amounts of money to fly someplace where then we won't necessarily even have continued interaction. One sense of... of Christian missionary that I think has been really successful. I shouldn't say Christian missionary because I don't really consider this group to be Christian, but one set of, of short-term missionaries that have been really successful in the past century have been the Mormons. Uh, and they have a program where they require all their young people who are, are men to become elders in their definition and to go on these mission trips internationally or whatnot. And they have the intention that those young men would go through language school, go live inside the communities they're serving, and offer uh, ways to serve their communities in ways that our short-term missionaries who go to Mexico or Africa would never put themselves out in doing. We couldn't imagine our young men and women going and spending you know, six months, a year, two years in Uganda. But what happens to those folks who do their missions is they're given a certain degree of leadership skills. They're given a, an experience with calling and selling and explaining the gospel in a way that hasn't uh, been expected of them in their life up to them. So if we are going to really support a short-term mission culture, maybe we need to put some more efforts on the front side of how are we equipping the people that we do send out and are we sending them for long enough that they can actually have an impact in the culture that they're serving in? And we examine whether or not they even have a good understanding of the faith itself. You can't teach what you don't know. And I'm always astounded when I hear people talk about how committed young people are in their church, only to discover, do they know the basic doctrines of the faith? Do they know the commandments of God? Do they understand all the implications of the Ten Commandments? And in most cases, they do not. And I would say that some of the photos that I have seen of these missions, especially to places that are very hot, is seeing girls so scantily clothed that it's almost an embarrassment to the cultures they go into because that's not their standard. So, they're not necessarily welcomed because they believe they're importing something that they don't want to have become a part of their culture. That's right. And there is something here about testing your faith as well. I think that your mission should be somewhat difficult. If your, your mission trip is following the same type of routines as, as a, a cruise or a, a European tour with schedules and buses and meals and all of this fancy planned out things, what exactly was being taught in your mission? I think the challenge of mission work should be that the young man or young woman is called to give a defense for what they believe. There's a great benefit in having to formulate and explain to people who have never heard the gospel what exactly it means. And there's a benefit in having to articulate that over and over again to people who wouldn't understand it. But reducing it down to a prayer, coloring pages, a bag of rice is not the same thing as defending your faith. Do our mission trips actually cost our kids something? And if they don't, are they good enough to be called Christian missions? 
And quite frankly, how do they look a lot different than the Peace Corps or some other quote unquote secular group that goes out that has good intentions towards people? Can you imagine? And you can look back because you went on these trips. So you go into a culture that's a polygamous culture. And the man says, why shouldn't I have two wives? <laughs> How many people who currently go on these trips would even want to broach that subject, want to challenge him? They would probably not want to offend him. But do they know the faith enough that they're ready to give a reason for the hope that's within them, which is a faithful rendering of the word of God? Right. And would they go into these culture brave enough to call the people to work the same way that St. Paul does. If you're a Christian missionary and you go into sub-Saharan Africa, could you say the same way St. Paul does? You don't work, you don't eat. Or would we consider that unloving, right? How much of a, of a Christian calling does your missionary agency or organization have? One of the great things about Reconstruction, and this can be found in David Chilton's book, Productive Christians, is that Christian mission is all about building a people who provide for themselves. St. Paul goes in and builds tents, not because he's unable to do altar calls for money. He's not able to do support raising. He's able to do it because he wants to show the people he's serving that every man must be able to provide for himself, that the role of Christianity in the culture is not to put a band-aid on hunger, not to put a, a band-aid on disease, not to put a band-aid on any type of shortcoming. And the role of the apostle or the evangelist is not simply to get us by until we either die or move on to heaven, but rather St. Paul goes into cultures with the idea that the work of missions is going to change that place so much that it's going to be like a new creation, that the men and women are going to have new life inside of him. Now, there are parts in Africa where people think like this. Unfortunately, it's because they've imported into Africa things like the prosperity gospel. They have heard America is rich and prosperous, and they've heard American missionaries come in and say it's because they believe in Jesus. And yet, the part that's been successful has been we want to leave our Aboriginal failure culture and enter into Christian culture. But the evangelical missionaries who have the gospel of the atonement and the work of Christ alone are sending them short-term missionaries of college students, and the prosperity people are sending them witchcraft and other types of Pentecostal tricks and, and all kinds of health and wellness preaching. What they really needed was those two things to be together. And that's what Reconstruction offers. It says, Jesus died for you. There's nothing you can do to add to it. But if you change your culture to be one submitted under the laws and under the scripture, then you will become a Christian culture of prosperity, goodness, and health. Instead of these two bifurcated ideas of either it's all about spiritualism or it's all about materialism. I also think there's a tendency to say mission work is only valuable if we are ministering to the poor. And yet you and I live in Silicon Valley, and there are a lot of people that don't necessarily hurt for money who are definitely in need of the gospel. And there are many Christians who sort of have their foot on both sides of the fence and they haven't quite committed. Are they committed to the kingdom or is that just something that will only be operative in their life if there isn't a lot of resistance? And so I think that your earlier comment that wherever you find yourself in your occupation and the calling that you have responded to by God, that is your mission field. And I know um, how hard a sell it is in our area to get people to see people who go to church, how important it is that their children are educated as Christians. It's amazing to me how unimportant that is to a lot of those who profess Christ. And yet, are we not seeing the effect of a whole segment of society, not just here in California, but other places as well, that can't 
think like Christians, can't speak like Christians, and therefore can't act like Christians. So much of our culture is built around this modern idea of, of guilt manipulation, right? We do missions because there are people who are suffering. We do missions because we want to alleviate sickness or hunger. And really the, the number one question is not whether or not people are poor or rich, uh, but rather not if they have the kingdom or they don't have the kingdom. And whether you're in the luxury of Silicon Valley or whether you're in Central America, the question remains the same. Now, what you said earlier about is this is this Peace Corps or is this Christian missions, I think is, is an excellent observation because what Christians are doing in mission is true for the rich and true for the poor. That's not true for all short-term missions. It doesn't make very much sense for me to go down the street here in my neighborhood and offer to build people houses. It doesn't make much sense for people in my neighborhood to receive bags of rice, but it does make sense for me to tell them how their lives make sense only in a Christian definition, how they need the Savior. And yet the Lord uses all of these circumstances, whether we're before emperors or before the rich or before the poor, to make sure our mission, our gifts and our calling align with his. You know, Dr. Rushduni was a missionary to Indian tribes in Nevada before he actually began his work as a scholar and a writer and a pastor elsewhere, and then eventually starting Chalcedon. And his observations in his book, The American Indian, show exactly what happens when the model is go in and do work for people and just hand things to them. Um, He calls it in his book, an example of the American welfare system and what the logical consequences are. And I think inadvertently we have gotten a welfare mentality in missions that says um, we're going to show people how much we care by giving them things rather than truly discipling them. That's right. And the, the world will look at how our missions end up. You know, it's very easy for us to look back just 200 years ago to the California missions or the Southwestern United States missions And what the world remembers about Christian missions in the United States uh, to the native populations has nothing to do with all the things that the Spanish did that were good. They don't remember all the children who were saved from child sacrifice. They don't remember all the people who were saved from poverty and saved from starvation. They don't remember all the kids who learned how to read and write and had all of their, uh, their faculties embraced. Instead, they remember Christians didn't offer the natives a full entrance into society. The critique of American missions in the Catholic perspective is that they created a subclass of people. They had the the priests and and the true Spanish Catholics. Then they had these people who lived on the mission reservations who were treated as a second class. They took their children from them and they said that they had to go to Christian schools, all these things that the modern world criticizes them for doing, we kind of do the same thing in our foreign missions in a short-term perspective. We create a different segment of society. Instead of empowering natives to become full Christians, we live this kind of reservation mission style. And it failed for the uh, Catholic missions. It's failed on the American reservations. And I think that what we're going to see when we look back in the next generation is that what worked for the African and Central American missionaries was when they went in and they said, this is going to be a Christian culture. We're going to build Christian schools, establish Christian churches. We're going to have Christian television, Christian radio, Christian arts, and we're going to teach the people how to become self-sufficient. We're going to teach them how to become productive And we're going to teach them how not to depend on foreign missionaries for their next meal. And that those are going to outpace the rich and uh, lazy American Christians who thought they could get by by pacifying missions with short-term goals. Right. I've heard it said that there are Christians in Africa and in China that feel that they need to come and do missionary work in America because of the 
uh, lukewarm or coldness of American Christians, whether it's Christians who are dealing in places like the Sudan or in places like China, where it costs them something to be Christians. It's not easy. It's not fashionable. It's not like, oh, I'm a Christian, so therefore here's the red carpet. They've had to make a choice. And this is especially true in my own tradition. Uh, as an Anglican, I look to you know England and the Church of England, and I see the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Mr. Welby, and he's a complete apostate. He compromises on on everything from sexual issues to of marriage uh, to social issues. He's he's not really worthy to be called a Christian. Yet he's the head of this you know Anglican Communion. Meanwhile, those folks who had been evangelized in Nigeria, in Uganda, and Sudan, who are predominantly Anglican, have rejected all of the Western ideas of sexuality. And in the United States, they've done exactly what you've talked about. Uh, Ten years ago, when the Episcopal Church finally came to uh, this idea of accepting gay bishops and the church split, it was the African churches, particularly the church in Nigeria and Kenya, Uh, and they came into the United States and ordained new bishops and created new jurisdictions in the United States to re-evangelize the Anglicans of the United States and have, as a worldwide force, refused to compromise uh, with the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, boycotting his conferences, saying that they, they don't recognize his authority, because for them to be Christians and to accept the view of marriage and sexuality means they're fighting Islam and they're fighting secularism and they're going against these international aid groups that want them to change their views on marriage and, and life and abortion and birth control. And yet the Western groups that somehow planted them a hundred years ago have completely compromised and lost the faith. I think you're absolutely right. The Chinese, the, the South American, these African groups are the hope of the future of our church. And our missionaries should be going in to support them as you know, fundamentalists, not by giving them handouts and, and patronizing them as second-class Christians. You know, I don't remember the context, and one of the benefits of having spent 15 years in Dr. Rushduni's living room, I heard a lot of stories, and I know sometimes those stories appear in his sermons or even in his books, but he was commenting on the hard work of a missionary and how I don't remember where it was, but this missionary was very, very um, despondent that he didn't think he had had an effect at all on the people of the um, area he was at. And a totalitarian government had taken over and was now removing all the Western Christian influence. And so he was in a position where he had to leave. And this one military person wanted to show him exactly how ineffective his work had been. And so what he did was he lined up various people of the village and told them that if they renounced their faith, they would live. But if they refused to renounce the Christian faith, they would die. And this missionary was astounded because all these people went to their death rather than renounce Christ. And he got to see that his work had been effective. That's fantastic. And it's, it's the opposite of what's now described as rice Christianity. Is the Christianity you teach only as good as the gifts that you offer the people who come to Christ? Or is there something more important than that? I think of the, the Coptic uh, groups who have been fighting Islam in northern Egypt and how they were willing to rather die for the Lord than to face martyrdom. So these are the the formative events that happened in the beginning of the church. It was coming against the emperor's sword that allowed the Christians to say, this is the power of the gospel. And it might be that we need our young people to take this view of missions of This is my call, life or death, in order for us to bring back the power of the gospel. And you've said it over and over again so many times about not knowing the history of our faith. I know one of the more moving reads that I have ever done is read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Because it's so easy to think that 
it's a romantic kind of thing that they did. But we're talking about people who faced lions, who faced losing their job, not being able to have an income. I, I think it's inspiring in as much as you see what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is present. That's right. So the question is, will the gospel survive a summer without short-term missions? Well, yes, it will, because our Lord promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The question, though, is, is your mission, whether it's one week or one month or your rest of your life, are you at the gates of hell tearing down the strongholds of Satan? Because that's what the Lord has promised will survive and will prosper. And so we need to teach our young people to invest their time, their efforts, their resources, their calling into fighting battles, to making adventures that are worth winning. And I think with that, the missions and the gospel will be even more powerful. We have something so special in Christianity that wherever we go and faithfully preach this gospel, we don't just see hearts change. We see entire cultures, families, institutions, businesses. They find their flourishing and prosperity upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And we have something that no one else can promise is that the Lord himself is going to prosper that work. So we should go into missions not with the timidity of two weeks, but rather knowing that whatever we do, eat, sleep, if we proclaim it in the Lord's name, it will be successful. And that not only will it be successful, but that it will transform this world. Well, thank you. I'm so glad we had this conversation because it's gotten me to reconsider a lot of the things that I had previously thought, well, this is the way it has to be. And you've, you've really introduced another way of looking at it. Um, listeners, thank you for joining us. If you have any comments about this, what we talked about today, or things that you would like us to discuss, please feel free to contact us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And Steve, until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.